Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So, John Carlo. That's me. Do you remember how last week we were all doom and gloom? Woe is us. Whatever will we talk about? Let's talk about sports ball. Do you remember that? You know, I remember it slightly differently. I think, I think we covered quite a lot of stuff. We did. We did. But I, I would just like the record to reflect that when we jokingly begged for a change of pace, we were talking about the SCOTUS news cycle in particular, uh, not the news cycle generally. So, listeners, do not blame us for the rest of the current news cycle. That one's not on us. We wanted to talk about opinions. Opinions. That's all we wanted, which we got today. We did. In fact, the court really kicked things up a notch this week, issuing five opinions, all of them on Tuesday. If the court is going to finish out the term at the usual time, we can expect a lot of cases these next few weeks. By my count, we're waiting on at least 20 opinions still, and last year the term ended on June 27. So if the court plans to finish at the same time, that's 6.6 cases in the next three weeks, each week. Honestly, I, I don't know how you issue like 0.6 of a case each week, much less 6.6 cases a week. Uh, but these are certainly unusual times. Uh, so this is this is going to be fun. Uh, everyone listening, your guess is as good as ours as to how the court is going to average a little over six opinions uh, a week or if we're just going to extend for a couple more weeks. And besides opinions, we had uh, something of a uh, nail-biter of a case in the COVID-19 emergency injunction case. Now, if you recall, that was a church in California that sought emergency relief from the state's stay-at-home order before the celebration of Pentecost on May 31st. Their petition for relief was denied 5-4 with Justice Roberts siding with the four Democratic appointees. Uh, now, remember, when, they, when the church first challenged the order in the Ninth Circuit, the order was a little different. It forbade churches from holding in-person gatherings at all. But by the time the court decided the case, the order had changed to allow in-person gatherings provided that the meetings were the lesser of 25% of the building's maximum occupancy or 100 people. The order did not, however, apply those same restrictions to grocery stores, laundromats, office buildings, etc. People could go to those as they wished. They just had to practice social distancing and wear masks. The chief in his concurrence recognizes the changing landscape, saying that judges should be wary of deciding a case when a party, quote, seeks emergency relief in an interlocutory posture while the local officials are actively shaping their response to the changing facts on the ground. Okay, whether you agree with that principle as applied in this case, the position is a defensible one and in line with Robert's known penchant for judicial restraint. But then things get weird. Roberts goes on to say that the order exempts only dissimilar secular locations like grocery stores and laundromats where people do not congregate in close proximity for long periods of time. Now, as a matter of fact, I doubt that the chief has ever done laundry in a coin-operated laundromat, but surely he's been to a Whole Foods on a Sunday afternoon. 
Regardless, putting that aside, he continues by saying that the locations similar to churches, like concert halls, face the same or more stringent restrictions. But this is what's weird. He's got the framework wrong. The proper framework when looking at restrictions on enumerated rights is not whether similar non-protected activity is treated worse. It's whether similar non-protected behavior is treated better. And on this front, the dissenters led by Kavanaugh have the winning argument based on the facts of the case. Office buildings, factories, hair salons, etc., are treated better than churches and people do congregate and linger in them. Ultimately, this is what sort of grinds my gears about this case, is that Robert's position relies on this unsupportable and unspoken premise. That people in hair salons, grocery stores, or an open floor plan Silicon Valley office can be trusted to socially distance and wear masks, whereas people in churches cannot. So along with that update on the emergency COVID orders, while we didn't have any new grants this week, which would make it several weeks in a row of, of silence from the court about what next term will look like, we did have one pretty significant cert denial that I think is worth talking about. That cert denial came in Jarkow v. State Bar of Wisconsin. This was a First Amendment challenge by a Wisconsin attorney to mandatory membership in a state bar association. Why? Because the association dues for the state bar are used to fund advocacy and speech on controversial matters of public interest. And I think one of the reasons this is important uh, is the dissent from the denial that we got from Thomas and Gorsuch. So they pointed out that just two terms ago, the court overturned its 1997 decision in a booed v. Detroit Board of Education. Now that case had held uh, that a law requiring public employees to pay mandatory union dues did not violate the First Amendment, and that case was overturned in Janus. Thomas and Gorsuch pointed out that the case at issue here, which is a 1990 case called Keller v. State Bar of Colorado, rests almost entirely on a bood, which is no longer good law, and that that alone should sort of prompt the court to take up this case. Next up, we have opinions. First one is Thole. It's a 5-4 case. The issue there was whether beneficiaries of defined benefit retirement plans have standing to challenge the investment decision of the plan's managers under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, commonly called ERISA. The court held that they do not have standing absent catastrophic plan or sponsor failure. So let's break this down. The plaintiffs here have what are called defined benefit retirement plans, meaning that no matter how well or poorly an investment portfolio does above total failure, they will always receive the same monthly payout. Now, they sued the investment managers alleging that they breached their fiduciary duties and caused the plan to lose $748 million. The problem? Whether they win or lose has no effect on the amount of money they get out of the plan. So the court held you don't have a stake in the outcome of the case and therefore no standing. Thomas concurred to reiterate that ERISA cases have to satisfy all the same standing requirements as any other kind of case. Sotomayor dissented, contending that plaintiffs had adequately alleged that there was a risk that the trust would fail, and also that trust beneficiaries have a legally protected interest in seeing that the trust is soundly managed. The second case in our very long lineup of five cases today is GE Energy v. Otokampu Stainless. This was a unanimous opinion by Thomas, 
and the court held that the Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards does not conflict with domestic equitable estoppel doctrines that permit the enforcement of arbitration agreements by non-signatories. Whoo, that was a sentence. What in the heck does that mean? So let's start at the beginning. In this case, you had an American company who sued a French subcontractor in federal court for allegedly giving them bad motors. Now the French subcontractor said, no, 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 no. The original contract you had with the original party said that you have to do arbitration, including with subcontractors. So you can't sue us. We need to do arbitration. The American company then argues that under this convention uh, that I'm not going to repeat, we're just going to refer to this as the convention. That is a mouthful. But under this convention, the French subcontractor never signed this contract. So it doesn't actually count. The French subcontractor then argues equitable estoppel, basically okay, the convention may say that, but that's not fair under domestic U.S. law. You should be compelled to arbitrate with us, too. The lower courts said, look, we're not going to address whether it's fair under equitable estoppel because the convention prohibits us from using any sort of domestic law doctrine that would allow you, as a non-signatory to the contract, to compel arbitration. So that's where we get to the Supreme Court today. And to sort of summarize this in in the easiest way possible, the court said, actually, lower court, the convention is silent on whether we can apply domestic law to refer parties in arbitration uh, in circumstances that are outside those provided by the convention itself. Uh, So in a very text history and tradition opinion that was peak Justice Thomas, Uh, He pointed out that the history shows only that the drafters of the convention wanted a baseline requirement, uh, not that it prevented the application of domestic law uh, where that application is more generous to parties involved. And he pointed out that this is also supported by, quote, post-ratification understanding of other countries and by the executive branch's understanding of the convention itself. You know what? The next time we have a guest on who is a Supreme Court clerk, I have to ask them, when you're deciding whether to recommend grant or denial of a cert petition, and you get a case like this, and you read it, and you think, oh my god, I don't understand anything, how do you, how do you make a recommendation? That's a good question. You were the clerk here, not me. So... I didn't clerk at, this, at the Supreme Court. I'm not smart enough for that. Next up, we have... The case involving Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board. The issue in this case is whether the appointment of the members of the board violated the appointments clause of the Constitution because they were appointed without the advice and consent of the Senate. The court said, no problem, they're not officers of the United States. So let's recall, in 2016, in response to Puerto Rico's financial crisis, Congress passed a law allowing the president, at the time Obama, to appoint members of this oversight board for Puerto Rico to manage the crisis. They got a lot of uh, powers, like the ability to declare bankruptcy and change budgets. What the law did not do was require the president to submit those board members for Senate confirmation. So after the board took a bunch of steps, uh, declaring bankruptcy, changing budgets, some creditors sued and said, look, These people are officers of the United States, so under the Appointments Clause, they have to be confirmed by the Senate, otherwise everything they do is invalid. 
a unanimous court said there's no appointments clause problem here because the board members exercise primarily local duties and not the powers of the federal government. Thomas concurred, writing that the original public meaning of officers of the United States means officers exercising the powers of the national government, not officers solely exercising Article IV territorial power. Sotomayor concurred reluctantly to discuss an issue not raised or briefed by the parties, which was whether the board members are properly considered officers of Puerto Rico and whether the board exists in what she called a twilight zone of accountability that the Constitution may not permit. Who is your head spinning yet? Because we, st we still have two more cases. Two more cases. So hang in there, everybody. Our fourth case that we had an opinion for this week is Bannister v. Davis. This was a 7-2 opinion by Kagan, and the court held that a Rule 59e motion to amend the judgment of a first habeas petition is not properly understood as a second or successive habeas petition, which state prisoners are generally prohibited from seeking. The court held that these motions to amend the original judgment are, quote, part and parcel of the first petition and not new challenges in and of themselves. According to the majority, the purpose of the original statute regarding second or successive petitions was to prevent petitioners from abusing the habeas process by stringing out his or her claims over many years. But these sorts of 59E motions don't allow that. Uh, what they are, according to the majority, uh, are just chances for courts to quickly fix mistakes from that first judgment before habeas application becomes final. We had a, an interesting dissent here uh, by Alito, joined by Thomas. Basically, they went to the majority and said, listen, this guy filed a 59E motion that was 300 pages long and argued 53 different reasons that his conviction was invalid. If he had filed that under any other label, it would have been summarily dismissed. What this really was, was a, a way to evade restrictions on filing a new petition by sort of couching it under a 59E label, and we shouldn't allow that. But it was a nice try on his end. And last up, Nasrallah versus Barr, a 7-2 case by Kavanaugh. The court held that courts of appeal can review factual challenges to denials of relief under the Convention Against Torture, even though they cannot make such reviews for final orders of removal. What this means is that once a non-citizen is ordered removed from the country, he or she can apply for relief under the Convention Against Torture, which we'll call CAT, saying, you can send me away, but you can't send me to a specific country because I'm going to be tortured there. And that's what happened here. The petitioner was ordered removed and denied cat relief, and when he appealed to the 11th Circuit, the 11th Circuit said federal law precludes us from doing a factual review of the final order of removal, so it also precludes us from a factual review of the denial of the cat relief. The Supreme Court said, actually, you can do a highly deferential review of factual challenges to cat denials. A cat order is not a final order of removal. They are two different things. They do not merge into the same order. The statute bars only review of the final order of removal. That's it. Thomas dissented, joined by Alito. They said that the majority's interpretation was driven by policy considerations and that the court thwarted congressional intent by systematically chipping away at this statute and other jurisdictional limitations on immigration claims. Whew, GC, we got through it. We got through all five. Good work, team. Team effort. Team effort. 
Well, this week I had the opportunity to interview trial attorney extraordinaire Matt Martins. Matt is currently with the firm Wilmer Hale, and he's there after a long and distinguished career in government service, first in the Justice Department during the George W. Bush administration, and later as Chief Litigation Counsel for the SEC's Enforcement Division. Matt, thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm glad to be here. Now, before you became a high-profile litigator, you clerked first for Judge David Santel on the D.C. Circuit, and then for Chief Justice William Rehnquist on the Supreme Court. Can you tell us just a little bit more about these experiences? Sure. So yeah, I spent a year in uh, the D.C. Circuit uh, with Judge Santel, as you mentioned, who's just a terrific judge. Uh, he went on, obviously, to be chief judge in his senior status now, but just a wonderful experience, both in terms of the judge and uh, everything I learned there uh, from him, and then also just wonderful co-clerks, both co-clerks for Judge Sintel uh, and also other uh, clerks uh, for the other judges at the at the court there, uh, many of whom have gone on to, uh, to, to great things. Um, wonderful group of people who I've kept in touch with. My office mate for the year was Kristen Silverberg, who went on to be ambassador to the European Union uh, during the Bush administration. Uh, one of my co-clerks, uh, who was with Judge Silberman, uh, is now a district judge uh, in D.C., and he was my law partner for a while. So number of law professors and otherwise, so really a, a tremendous group of people who I was honored to have the chance to work with. Uh, and the same true at the Supreme Court. Uh, um, Chief Justice Rehnquist was just uh, an amazing person, had been at the court for probably approaching uh, 25 years or so by the time I clerked for him. Uh, uh, I used to joke that he joined the court before I was born, which I found funnier than he did. Uh, <laughs> but he just had an amazing knowledge of, of Supreme Court law. Uh, I remember one time we were in his office trying to uh, find a think about a case site for a particular opinion that uh, I was helping him with, and uh, he walked over to the wall of Supreme Court reports, uh, uh, reported decisions, and pulled a book off of the wall uh, and opened it up and said, "This should work." Uh, it was for an, an incredibly obscure proposition, so he uh, he really knew Supreme Court law, unlike probably anybody else, having been there as long as he was and given his his prior role in the Office of Legal Counsel and also as a Supreme Court clerk himself for Justice Jackson. So, uh, you know, it was really an amazing experience. Yeah, it, it certainly sounds like it. And you mentioned that some of your co-clerks went on to work uh, in the Bush administration, but in fact, you did as well. And my understanding is that actually on 9-11, you were working in the DOJ as Chief of Staff to then Assistant Attorney General Mike Shirtoff. What was that like? Yeah, it was uh, quite a time. I was obviously there both on 9-11 and then um, Enron and the related financial scandals happened shortly thereafter. So it was it was really an amazing time to be in D.C. I, I, re I still remember seeing the smoke coming out of the Pentagon. Um, and uh, it's kind of one of those days that's seared in your memory forever, uh, even now uh, coming up on 
you know, what are we uh, coming up on 19 years later? Uh, it's kind of one of those days and one of those periods in time that you know, just never forget. Yeah, and, and that seems, again, like it was back-to-back -back with 9-11, and then you brought up Enron as well. Um, do, now, did you take part in, in some of that Enron investigation and, and those ongoings um, with those cases? So I certainly had you know, some involvement. I was not a member of the task force that uh, handled that was put together to handle those matters, but obviously they were being directly managed by uh, Mike, uh, as the head of the criminal division, uh, those cases were all being run out of Washington. Uh, so it was a, you know, certainly got to see a lot of uh, a lot of those cases and a lot of those matters up close, both the 9/11 related cases and also the, the financial crisis cases. So it was it was certainly quite a time to be there. Uh, some I, for 18 months or 19 months that I spent there, I certainly got to see a lot of of uh, very significant issues. When it sounds like, uh, again, then Assistant Attorney General Mike Chertoff certainly thought highly of you. And in fact, I've seen now a quote from the New York Times uh, of him regarding you that what made you so good as a trial attorney was that you had this incredible ability to put complicated things into plain English. And I was wondering, could you expound on that a little bit more and some of your thoughts on how you go about preparing for some of these cases um, you know, and, and how that worked out that planning while you were at the DOJ? Sure. So, I mean, one of the real, uh, real pleasures I had uh, as a young lawyer was that before joining Mike at DOJ, um, I was an associate uh, working with Mike Chertoff in private practice for several years and actually tried um, as a young associate five cases along with Mike, also one with Beth Wilkinson, who was also a partner at the law firm we were at at the time. And I, I joke, and everyone who's tried cases with me uh, since then knows this to be true, that I, I always say everything I learned about trying cases, I learned from Mike and, and from Beth. And I'm always telling stories about things that I learned from them uh, about trying cases. Uh, I just learned so much in those experiences as a young associate. I was like a third, fourth, fifth year associate at the time. Uh, but getting to see up close their trial skills was really something. And you know, I think what I've learned um, a number of things I've learned uh, over time, but really that lawyering generally um, and trials in particular is about storytelling. And I don't mean storytelling in a uh, make up a story sort of way, um, but to craft your arguments in the form of a story. I, one of the things I always say to folks is a good story will be a great argument every time. You know, it's not about I've got three points that are better than your three points. Um, but more that it's I've got a story that resonates with the jury about what happened here and ultimately about what the just outcome is. Another thing I always say to associates is you don't win cases based on F-third sites. Uh, no judge is going to do, in my experience, what they think is uh, something that's unjust. They're certainly not going to be interested uh, or desirous to reach an unjust result just because you've got an F-third site. Uh, what they what what they're looking to do is do the right thing and a fair thing, I think, is is my experience how most judges, particularly at the trial level, operate. Um, and the law hopefully is aligned with what that just result is. But usually uh, what's most effective is developing the facts and developing the narrative and putting together the story with the witnesses and the documents 
that presents a compelling picture to a jury or to a judge, if that's the decision maker, um, about what is the right result here, the fair result. Uh, that's usually what's most effective, and that's really what I've learned uh, over the years of trying cases. Well, and you've certainly been very effective as a trial attorney. In fact, my understanding is you've won trials at all four tables of litigation. So as a civil plaintiff, as a civil defendant, criminal prosecutor, criminal defendant, and that's quite a unique experience. What have you learned from that experience and sort of the differences on those different postures of being at those different tables of litigation? Yeah, it is. I, I certainly have had uh, an interesting experience in that regard, having had the opportunity to be counsel at, as you said, all four tables, so to speak. And, uh, you know, there's often people grow up kind of at one of those tables and thus they have skill. They're good at some things and not good at others. I often people who've developed almost all of their trial skills as prosecutors might be really good at direct examination, but not often good at cross-examination or maybe people who have spent their entire career as public defenders or defense lawyers are good at cross-examination, but not always good at direct examination. Um, and I've, by, by having a, an array of experiences, the diversity of experiences, I think I've been able to develop uh, both cross-examination and direct examination skills. But ultimately, I think, uh, as I mentioned, the, the unifying factor across all those types of cases is really the ability to put a story together. That whether you're defending a case or, or prosecuting a case, at the end of the day, uh, even as a defense lawyer, it's not just about picking away at elements or picking away at a particular witness's credibility, though that's certainly involved. Uh, but ultimately what you have to do is put together a counter narrative, a different story, a different way for the jury to look at the facts and what occurred here to take the three dots that the prosecution might be asking them to connect, the jury to connect and saying, but there's actually six more dots here. And when you look at all nine dots, uh, it, it paints a different picture. Uh, and so I think it's that storytelling aspect of it that really runs across uh, trial lawyering, regardless of which side you're on. Now, there's one case in particular uh, that I want you to walk us through just a little bit more from your career. So after working as an AUSA, you became the SEC's top trial lawyer and actually led the team that secured the conviction in the high-profile case against Fabrice Torre for insider trading. Can you just walk us through that case a little bit and your experience with it? Sure. So that case was probably the most high-profile case that the SEC brought coming out of the financial crisis. Uh, Mr. Tour had, was charged by the SEC with putting together a financial product that was designed to fail uh, so that someone who was taking the short side of the transaction could make a billion dollars, uh, potentially. And it was uh, pitched to investors without a full disclosure of of how it was constructed and that it was designed to fail. Uh, and so when I joined the SEC, the case had already been charged um, and it was in discovery and ultimately went to trial toward the end of my time there. Uh, it was one of those surreal experiences, maybe that you dream about as a lawyer, but you don't know that you'll ever experience. Uh, we showed up at the courthouse the first day and got out of the car and there were people with cameras and uh, both still cameras and video cameras sort of chasing us down the sidewalk. 
The courtroom was packed every day, had multiple media outlets there every day, probably six or eight media outlets there for the entirety of the three-week trial, had two courtroom sketch artists who were drawing pictures during the entire trial, one of which uh, actually hangs in the lobby of the federal courthouse in Manhattan. Wow. I often have friends who see it now and uh, take a picture and send it to me uh, when they when they see it. But I've seen it myself now, and I bought I bought some of them from some of the uh, courtroom artists as well. Uh, the closing argument was really a unique experience. My parents actually uh, got to come, and uh, my mom is that's the only time she's ever seen me in court. So she came to the closing argument. My dad was there. One of my brothers came during the course of the trial, so that was special. And during the closing argument, I think they were running three courtrooms full of people, two of them who were watching entirely by closed circuit television because there were so many people there to see it. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's one of those experiences where, you know, if anybody ever Googles my name, they'll find uh, me connected with Fabrice Tour, I guess, forever. So, and we did prevail on that. It was an important case for the SEC. That's why I tried it myself. Uh, it, it was such a high-profile case, an important case for the SEC related to the financial crisis, and needed um, the agency needed to win to demonstrate that they could hold people accountable coming out of the financial crisis. And so that's why I took the case on myself, and it was you know, a wonderful experience, a challenging case, uh, but we were fortunate enough at the end of the day to win. That's incredible, absolutely incredible. Now, you've since uh, left the SEC, you're in private practice with, with Wilmer Hale, and you're also Correct. currently doing quite a bit of pro bono work on religious liberty cases, especially those right now stemming from the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders. Um, so clearly that's a, a bit of a you know, change from, from doing work for the SEC. But what can you tell us about some of these ongoing religious liberty cases? Sure. So, I mean, as my day job and private practices, I represent people, not surprisingly, in government investigations and usually SEC investigations. But um, my side practice in pro bono, which I try to spend a good amount of time on every year, uh, is religious liberty cases. And I've been working primarily with a group called First Liberty out of Plano, Texas, and their general counsel, Hiram Sasser. He and I have become good friends, and he often comes to me with uh, interesting cases. Uh, what I really appreciate about Wilmer Hale is that they're very good about allowing partners and, and associates to take on things that interest them uh, and give us wide latitude to do that. And so I've never had any problem with the firm approving uh, me taking on cases. And we've taken on a number here since the COVID-19 crisis has begun, uh, where we've been representing churches uh, who are trying to find ways to safely meet as churches, churches who believe that physical in-person meeting is a critical portion of their faith um, and that online church is not a long-term substitute. So we've been working with them to try to find ways to uh, satisfy governmental restrictions, uh, safety precautions, and at the same time allow their churches to continue to meet. We have written some letters, um, but ultimately a number of cases, the letter writing wasn't successful. And so we had to bring lawsuits uh, and we've done that. We brought the first case in the country that resulted in a uh, COVID-19 stay at home order being overturned in any respect 
that was a case we brought on behalf of uh, On Fire Church in Louisville. We sued the mayor on the on Good Friday, right before Easter, and got a temporary restraining order on the Saturday before Easter, allowing the church to conduct drive-in church services where people would remain in their cars uh, and they would not leave the cars. They'd keep the windows up and the pastor would be on a stage out in the parking lot speaking over a, a speaker system that would amplify so that people could hear. And we argued that the mayor was prohibiting that without a justification in a way that was discriminating against religion. Uh, the mayor was allowing, for example, cars of any number to congregate in parking lots of shopping centers and malls and grocery stores. Uh, and if that was true, then there was no good reason to discriminate against cars congregating in a church parking lot uh, where people were following the same social distancing and safety precautions uh, as the CDC had recommended. So that was the first case we brought, uh, and that was successful. As I said, it was the first case in the country that overturned a, a, a stay-at-home order on any grounds. Um, and then a few weeks later, we brought another lawsuit, uh, this time against the, the governor of Kentucky. It was on behalf of a church that wanted to meet in person, again, was willing to follow the CDC social distancing guidelines. And importantly, it was in a county that had been very minimally affected by COVID-19. It was a very rural community. Uh, there were only 40 cases out of about 54,000 people in the county, and there had been no fatalities, thankfully. And so we argued in that those circumstances, there wasn't, uh, it wasn't appropriate to preclude about 100 people from meeting in person if they were going to social distance uh, and follow other safety precautions. And again, we obtained a TRO, the first one in the country, again, allowing in-person church services to occur uh, after a stay-at-home order was issued. And in both of those instances, we ultimately were able to reach then a settlement with the government authorities to negotiate uh, a resolution where the government would allow the churches to meet uh, so long as certain health and safety precautions were taken, which the church was, the ch both churches were happy to abide by. They were, they were as interested in the safety of their members as the government was. So those have been uh, a, a very fun cases, uh, very satisfying cases to work on. We've, we've talked to some other churches since then and some states that continue to uh, impose pretty onerous restrictions on churches. Ultimately, in each instance, the case has gone away uh, because the government authorities have decided to work out a solution rather than force a lawsuit. So uh, hopefully uh, as time passes here, these, these cases will become less and less necessary. Yeah, absolutely. I, I say this as a pastor's kid myself. Um, I, I know this has been a, a very important ongoing issue um, and it, it's, uh, it, it's good to see sort of the, the pro bono work that's happening on the religious liberty cases. And, and also good to see that uh, some of these cases including some of your own, have been quite successful. I also have it on good authority that, that you're not just into the First Amendment, but that you've also discovered uh, or developed a newfound appreciation for another amendment, the Second Amendment. So is there a story behind this that we should know about? I, I don't know if it's fair to say a newfound interest. Uh, 
it's interesting when I was at the Department of Justice with Mike Chertoff back in the early 2000s, I got assigned to oversee the briefing that the department was doing nationwide. If you might, you might remember way back in the early 2000s, Attorney General Ashcroft had issued a memo saying that he believed that the Second Amendment was an individual right, not a, not a collective right of the militia. Which um, was, was not necessarily popular at, at the time. It was, was not. Necessarily popular right. Argument. right. And this was all pre-Heller and vers- virtually every circuit had ruled otherwise. I think the Fifth Circuit might have ruled as the first circuit to rule that it was a, an individual right. And so the department was taking the view that they were defending gun rights while at the same time defending the gun laws as being constitutional. Um, and there was a coordination of the litigation nationwide and I was the point person on that, which was pretty um, somewhat ironic because at the time I had never owned a gun uh, and had only fired a gun a few times in my life. I've since taken up uh, shooting as a hobby, uh, and I do that uh, occasionally with my kids. Uh, uh, It gives me a good opportunity to teach them gun safety and uh, cleaning and marksmanship and otherwise. Uh, so it is certainly a hobby uh, I've pursued over the last few years uh, and hopefully I'm a safe and responsible gun owner. Well, we might have to have a SCOTUS 101 follow-up edition uh, for, from a range where, where we go together. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that great, uh, but I'm getting better. Matt, you've, you've been a phenomenal guest, and, and we appreciate having you on. We, we do have one more question. Uh, this is a question that we ask every guest who comes on the show. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be, and what would you talk about? Well, that's a hard question. Um, you know, there's a side of me that would love to talk with Chief Justice Rehnquist one more time. It's hard to believe that you know, he's been um, passed now for about 15 years, and I miss him, and uh, I just am very grateful for the opportunity he gave me early on. Um, I, we had a chance when we were clerks at the Supreme Court to have lunch with many of the other justices. We would, we as a group of three clerks for the chief, would invite the other justices to go to lunch, and I think almost all of them took us up on that. And I still remember to this day, uh, 20, whatever it is, 23 years later, our, our lunch with uh, Justice Scalia, which was highly entertaining and probably only scratched the surface of interesting topics uh, that we could discuss with him. Uh, but I would uh, probably aside from the chief, I'd love to uh, have a chance to uh, speak again with Justice Scalia and um, just hear much of his wisdom and probably thinking about originalism. It's a topic I've thought about a lot more even since clerking and would just be interested in probing and pressing and uh, understanding more and more of it from him as somebody who clearly had spent a career thinking about that topic. So that's probably who I would pick. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. Uh, You've been delightful to have on and we certainly hope we can have you back at some point in the future. I'd love to do it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, Matt has graciously agreed to indulge us as our guest for trivia this week. So our theme, given that he was a former uh, clerk for Chief Justice William Rehnquist, our theme today is 
William Rehnquist. We're going to see no. what this former clerk <laughs> remembers about his chief justice. Uh, I could get embarrassed here, but uh, we'll give it a try. All right, the first question. Long before he was a justice himself, William Rehnquist also clerked for a Supreme Court justice. Who was that justice? Robert Jackson. That is correct. William Rehnquist clerked for Justice Robert Jackson uh, way back long before he was justice himself. Second and if question. I remember correctly, if I remember correctly, just a little story on that, the chief had a signed copy of a Robert Jackson photo from the time when he clerked, if I'm remembering this right. And Justice Jackson had written a particular statement on it uh, to his clerks, including Chief Justice Rehnquist. And I believe that Chief Justice Rehnquist included the exact same statement on all of the photos that he signed for his clerks subsequently. That's awesome. So I'm assuming now you have one of those as well. I do. I have it in my office and uh, I'm pretty sure it's the same statement that was signed to him by Justice Jackson. Excellent. Well, you nailed that one. So moving on to question number two. After, right. his, right. after his clerkship, Rehnquist returned to Arizona and worked in private practice. During this time, he served as a legal advisor for which presidential campaign? I believe it was Barry Goldwater. That is correct. He was a legal advisor for the Goldwater campaign in the 1960s. So far, you are two for two. You're doing Chief Justice <laughs> Rehnquist proud. All right. Third question. We have five in total. So get into the half. All right. Rehnquist was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1971. Which retiring justice did he replace? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Who did Rehnquist replace? I remember some of the people who were nominated before him. I think Clement Hainsworth was somebody who was nominated before him, but who did he replace? Hmm. He replaced, I'm going to guess, so 1971. I think he replaced. You're saying who did he replace for? As an the, associate justice. As an associate justice. John Harlan? That is correct. You may have, it may oh, have wow. been a guess, but you guessed it correctly. <laughs> three for three, wow. batting a thousand. All right. All right. Question number four Justice Rehnquist was the most frequent sole dissenter on the Burger Court, earning him what nickname? Uh, I think the Lone Ranger. It is the Lone Ranger. Bonus points if you can tell me how many soul descents he authored during this time as the Lone Ranger. Oh, I wouldn't have any idea. Eighty. Uh, you know, you weren't you weren't out of the ballpark. Just fifty-two. Right. Fifty-two soul right. That's fine. That was for bonus points, so you're still batting it out. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Final question. Final question about a thousand on Chief Justice William Rehnquist. As Chief Justice, William Rehnquist initiated a unique wardrobe change, adding four of what to the Chief Justice's robe? 
chevrons on the sleeve. That is correct. He added four yellow stripes on each sleeve, and that practice has since been abandoned, uh, but it was something that he initiated <laughs> for the Chief Justice robe. And so you get to walk away batting a 1,000, having done your former mentor very, very proud. Oh, good, good. I did not embarrass myself there, so that's good. Not at all. You, you did fantastic. Thank you so much for indulging us. Well, thank you again for having me. Well, folks, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please, please, please be sure to leave us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Conaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.